for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death has come through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes through those belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of God for the people of God. Would you all stay standing? We're going to share together the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I've got some good news, and I've got some, some perhaps uncomfortable news. Here's the good news. Uh, the air conditioning was not working at the last service, and the air conditioning is working now, which is really good. If you've been around, you know we've had adventures with air conditioning. The uncomfortable news is I see numerous people here who I don't know. It means this may be your first Sunday at Cornerstone, and on your first Sunday worshiping with our community, we are talking about judgment and hell. <laughs> Makes for a great first. It was a perfect object lesson at the last service when the temperature was rising and everyone was just kind of sweating it out. Today we are talking about, uh, we're, we're talking through the Apostles' Creed as a church, we have for, for several weeks now, and today we're talking about the next article in the Creed which says, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Entitled the message today, The Good News About Judgment, because perhaps different than how it sounds, the news of judgment is something the world from God is so desperately craving. Now we're, we're all trained to think Many of us are trained to think that judgment is a bad thing. Uh, we think it's bad news for lots of different reasons. Or maybe you haven't been given very good teaching on it from the church at all, or it's confusing, and so you just decided not to think about it at all. Uh, several dynamics make the topic of judgment uh, difficult. One of those is the baggage that we have around the word judgmental, judgment or the idea of being judgmental. How many of you would say being judgmental is a good thing in our world? No, 
being judgmental is a, is a maligned quality. When we use that word, we're usually putting someone down in a negative way. Judgment feels like being a jerk. Judgment is associated with shame and rubbing your face in it. Judgment is connoted with being self-righteous. Another dynamic that makes the topic of judgment difficult is you've heard no teaching on the subject, perhaps. More likely, you've heard bad teaching on the subject or scripturally thin teaching on the subject or um, overly simplistic teaching on the subject. I think a third reason why the topic of judgment might be a bit difficult for some is that you forget who is coming to do the judging and what that person is like. We're going to talk about that. And then finally, the topic of judgment can be a bit difficult because you have an inadequate understanding of how judgment fits into the overall story of God. Now, contrary to perhaps your first knee-jerk reaction to the topic of God's judgment, I want to say to you that God's judgment is a good, good thing and a thing that the world is desperately craving. Because God's judgment is all about justice. Think about that thing in our world right now that just infuriates you. Think about that thing in our world right now that makes your blood boil because it's just so wrong and somebody should do something about it. God's judgment is about setting to rights all of those things which are, which are antithetical to the plans and the purposes of God. Those things that you have this moral like, sense of like you want to vomit because of how disgusting it is, God is equally offended by these things and wants to make things right. Now, for many people, an enduring obstacle for, the pro for, for Christian belief is what we can call the problem of evil. It's the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Or they might say, you know, if God is good, how could he let such and such terrible thing happen? Now, the people who ask this question have a right moral instinct. They know that such things for a good and just God are incompatible. That if God is truly good, such things would be ultimately addressed. The people who ask this question have a right moral instinct. The ultimate goodness and justice of God is compromised if those injustices go forever unaddressed. When we talk about he will come again to judge the living and the dead, when we come talk about God judging the earth, this is the final righting of wrongs. It's the ultimate untangling of the problem of evil which will occur when Christ returns according to the scriptures. Now, in order to think rightly about this topic, we need to do a little bit of a refresher about what the Bible has to say about last things, about, about last things. Now, many of the people in this room perhaps think, or I would say many people think Christians believe something like this, that, okay, here's you, and this is your life, this is the timeline of your years, however many or how few God gives you, and a lot of the time you're a good person, and some of the times you're... Not so good a person, but you try to average out and do pretty well. And in the course of your life, if you happen to come to trust in Jesus, hey, good news, because the moment that you die, you get to leave earth and fly away and go to heaven and be with the angels and sit on the clouds. 
but not so good news that, you know, if along the course of your life you never came to trust in Jesus, then when you die, you fly away and you go down to hell where there is fire and pitchforks and, you know, the little devil that was on your shoulder who appeared, on, you know, the angel was on the other shoulder, those moments where you made the wrong choice. If you didn't come to trust in Jesus, then you're going to fly away from earth and go to hell and there you're going to suffer forever. This is what uh, many people think that Christians believe. And some of you may be thinking, that's what I believe. <laughs> Am I in the wrong? Well, the problem is, it's not that this is altogether wrong, it's that it's incomplete. This is not the most accurate, most comprehensive introduction to what the Bible has to say about last things. So, if we want to know how the story ends, let's go back and take a quick look at how the story begins. First verse of the Bible. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, in the beginning, what did God create? The heavens and the earth. Very good. Now note that it says God created the heavens and the earth, but it doesn't say God created the heavens and the earth and hell. Now some of you immediately, as I raised the question, you thought, oh no, this church has got off the rails. Heresy ahead, heresy ahead. I am as orthodox as it comes. Whatever hell is, it wasn't there in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was this sense, reading the first chapters of the Bible, that in the beginning, heaven and earth were conjoined. At least to the extent that God was among his people. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day through the garden. God was, was able to commune with his people unmediated. God's dwelling was among the people, and heaven and earth are together. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve usurp, attempt to usurp God's authority by defining right and wrong for themselves. That was the essence of the first sin. Shame comes in, blame comes in, and all of a sudden we see the cracks in the relationship between heaven and earth, and we see this sense of separation between the two. God posts an angel with a flaming sword, uh, barring access to Adam and Eve uh, to the tree of life so that their sin cannot snowball in perpetuity. In the beginning, God's dwelling was among the people, but when sin comes into the story, there's separation. Now, what I'm about to say is of incredible importance, and I want you to make sure you're listening. The overarching story of the Bible is not about us flying away to heaven from earth, but all of God's efforts to bring heaven and earth back together again. It was so good you need to hear it twice. The overarching story of the Bible is not primarily about us flying away from earth into heaven, but all that God is doing ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit to bring heaven and earth back together again. Well, what about hell? What the hell, John? Come on. We're going to get to that. But first, we need to get our brains around heaven and earth and how they relate. You should watch this from the Bible Project. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate. 
spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. 
But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. That saved me so much time. <laughs> I want to say again, the overarching story of the Bible is not about us leaving earth and flying off to heaven, but God's efforts to bring heaven and earth back together again. But here's the thing. If heaven and earth are going to be reunited and reestablished in perfect peace and with perfect justice, there's something else that has to happen. The first thing God has to do is to get the hell out of earth. And in the same way that Jesus in his incarnation is establishing colonies of heaven on earth, we all already know that there are colonies of hell present among us. Hell is not only this future tense destination, but for many people it is a present tense reality. The tree of the knowledge of evil has taken root in our terrestrial soil and the fruit is found in every eye and every hand. Where do we see hell on earth? Think about things like, like sex trafficking or rape or sexual abuse. And for the people who've gone through those kind of things and the, the, the caretakers who help people begin to heal from those kind of things, they could tell you it is indeed hell on earth. We hate these things, but did you know that God hates them even more? We take such things with sobriety and seriously, but did you know that God takes it even more seriously than we do? We see these things in their mature form, but God sees them in their seed form, and the problem is it's present in each of us. He sees sex trafficking and abuse and exploitation and objectification, and he sees it in its seed form in me and in you, and he calls it lust, and he said, that's the problem, it's the seeds of hell in your heart. Where else do we see signs of hell? When one person in cold blood takes the life of another. When in our most intimate of relationships there's abuse, whether it's spiritual or verbal or emotional or physical, doing violence, as Malachi says, to the one that we're meant to protect, such things are evil. And Jesus takes it even more seriously than we do, and he sees these things in their seed form in us in the form of pride and anger and hatred. And he hates it. 
And, and if he's going to establish pure, true justice on earth, God first has to get the hell out of earth, which means that he's got to get the hell out of us. Now, in Mark chapter 1, I could have used any number of scriptures, but in Mark chapter 1, we see how in and through uh, the person of Jesus Christ, God has inaugurated the first wave of the incursion of bringing heaven to earth. Listen to this, uh, Mark chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. What is the good news of God? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is here. Now, what is the appropriate response to the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand? Jesus says it's to repent. Now, repent is a churchy word. You could describe it in lots of ways, but one way of getting at it, thinking about it through the lens of judgment in the kingdom is that to repent is to voluntarily participate now in the purging of hell from the earth that will be mandatory later. To repent is to voluntarily participate now in the purging of hell from the earth that later on is going to be compulsory. It's going to be mandatory. And simultaneously, it's to, to joyfully choose to live now in the kingdom of heaven that is here and will be fully reunited with the earth when Christ returns. You could say, in a sense, that the citizens of the kingdom are living in the present as if they're already living in the future. Hell is being purged from us in the present because the kingdom is at hand and we're participating in it through repentance. And yet we also live in the future because we're living under God's reign now, which is what Jesus instructed us to pray. Let, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth and in me as it is in heaven. Now, when it comes to the topic of last things, we don't know everything. There are details that we're not quite sure how it's going to shake out. And so I would say to you as you're researching this topic, beware the over-certain. But I would also say to you, beware the under-certain. Because we've not been left without a guide. I like how N.T. Wright says that when it comes to thinking about final, ultimate things, we have signposts pointing into the fog. There are lingering questions, but there's a lot that we can no. I like how one person said, we do not know everything about what's coming to us, but we do know who is coming to us. With God's help, in the next couple of minutes, I'm going to try to give you eight things that I think that we can, we can know and believe with confidence from the scriptures about judgment, about last things. And we're going to try to keep it basic, eight things. Are you ready for number one? Listening? Okay. Number one. At an unknown time in history, Jesus will return to the earth. At an unknown time in history, Jesus will return to the earth. Lots of people have attempted to guess when that will happen. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. They're all wrong. It's an unknown time in history. Uh, Jesus will return to earth. When he returns, it will be glorious. It will be public. It will be sudden, and it will be visible. It's kind of like the ascension in reverse. Go back to Acts chapter 1. 
After Jesus said these things, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. There will come a day. I mean, you can mark it, and you can't mark it on your calendar, but on the day it happens, you go, okay, this was the day where he'll come. There are four words that the New Testament uses to describe his coming. One of them is my favorite, parousia. It means his presence. He will be physically present to us. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, the text that we just read. There's the word epiphania. It comes from 2 Thessalonians 2.8, meaning appearance. He's going to appear to us. Phanerosis, Colossians 3, 4, he's going to be manifested. There's going to be a manifestation of his presence. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, and 7, we've got apocalypsis. It's going to be the apocalypse. The language just means the unveiling. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, we all see as through glass dimly, but one day we shall see face to face. Right now we're, we're getting a peek behind the curtain, especially with the incarnation of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. We're seeing more and more. And yet there will come a day when the whole curtain is drawn back and we see him who our heart desires. I love Don and Lori Chaffer years and years ago wrote a song and the chorus said, He will come, He will come, He will comfort all disheartened, uh, make the deserts into gardens and we all will see His face. What can we know about judgment, the end, last things? One, at an unknown time in history, Jesus will return to earth. Praise God. The second thing we can know from the scriptures, when He comes... The dead will be raised and the earth will be renewed. I'm not going to talk as much about the renewal of the earth. Go read the end of the Bible. But the the dead being raised is is a mystery hiding in plain sight that not enough of us have on our radar. When he comes, the dead will be raised. Acts chapter 24 tells us who will be raised. Paul is giving testimony and he says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. So I strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. At an unknown time in history, Jesus will return. When he comes, the cemetery is going to be an awesome place to be. The dead will be raised and the earth will be renewed. The third thing that we can know confidently from the scriptures is that upon his return, the living and the dead will face judgment. The living and the dead will face judgment. 1 Corinthians 4. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Just before this, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, look, I don't even judge myself. He says, so judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Hasn't it? We've, we've had glimpses of this apocalypse, this unveiling this like kind of teaser of the judgment that is to come when there have been pastors and ministry leaders who we just think are saints and they turn out to be monsters. And when the dead rise and all of the secrets are laid bare before all of us, I think we'll find the opposite to be true, that there were people who we took to be just total nobodies who were great in the kingdom of God. 
When Christ returns, the living and the dead will face judgment. The Greek word used for judgment is crisis with a K. And it connotes a separation or a crossroads. It makes us think of passages like Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, and then the band Cake wrote that song, Sheep Go to Heaven, Goats Go to Hell. Some of you will remember that. At judgment, uh, all of our deeds and uh, words and actions, both good and bad, will be fully revealed, and there will be no more pretending. Think about this passage that you've probably heard before through the lens of judgment and through the lens of Christ and the kingdom. For the word of God, Jesus himself, is the word who was with God and was God. The word of God is living and active. Man, won't it be awesome to know? He's alive! It's all true! The stories from the very beginning, that stuff that we hoped was true and believed are... Our faith is made sight. He is alive and active. And man, he is sharp, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He will come at an unknown time in history. When he comes, the dead will be raised Upon his return, we, the, the dead will rise to judgment. And then fourth, good news. The Father has appointed Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. John chapter 5. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has already crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus said he has been appointed the judge because he is the son of man, and he's the son of God. He's perfectly suited for it. When the dead in Christ rise, and those of us who love and have followed Jesus rise, we do not need to fear judgment because Colossians chapter 3 says we are hidden with Christ in God. Our sins are forgiven and will not be counted against us. Nonetheless, for us and for all the world, it is exceptionally good news that Jesus is the one who's been entrusted with judgment. Uh, Thomas Oden, in his Systematic Theology, says, There's an ironic correspondence between the two articles in the Apostles' Creed, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. The judge bears in his own body the marks of his passion for the adjudged, for those who are sitting under judgment. The judge is the man on the cross who has already been condemned for the sins of the world. It is morally fitting that the same God-man, Jesus, who came to save humanity from sin should be the judge of sin. 
In the end, we are judged by one who can empathize with our human condition and can understand the obstacles that make our lives so imperfect and yet who remain sinless through the pain and struggle of resisting temptation. Good news, the Father has appointed Jesus as the judge. The fifth thing that we can confidently know about the judgment that is to come is the manner in which Jesus will judge. Jesus will judge with perfect justice and mercy. And in the same way that Jesus is completely God and completely human, in the same way that the Trinity is completely three and completely one, that Jesus will judge with perfect justice and mercy. Tom Oden again. He said, The mercy of the final judge is wholly just. And the justice of the judge is incomparably merciful. The radiance of mercy is precisely that it is just. And the glory of justice is that it is merciful. A justice exercised unmercifully would fail to express the love of God. And a mercy exercised unjustly would undermine the moral order. There are mysteries in this, and yet we know Jesus will judge with perfect justice and mercy. There's some evidence in Scripture that fitting with this theme of mercy and justice that not all will be judged in the same way. Those who do not know Christ, according to Romans chapter 2, will be judged according to the law of conscience or even the law of nature. Look at Romans chapter 2. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, Gentiles is non-Jews, when, when they do things, do by nature things that are required of the law, by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Scripture seems to leave room for the possibility that those who do not, do not know Christ will be judged according to what's been revealed in nature, Paul said, so that men are without excuse, or even according to what's on conscience, according to Romans chapter 2. Jews who do not yet believe in Jesus may be judged according to the law and the prophets, Romans 2.12. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Believers who do not need to, to fear judgment will be judged according to the gospel and will be rewarded for faithfulness. Jesus in Revelation 22. Look, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Scripture appears to reveal this principle that people will be judged according to the revelation given them, whether it's nature or conscience or law or gospel. What we know for certain is that when Jesus judges, he will judge in a way that is pure mercy and also the pure administration of justice. And make no mistake that there is no getting past the throne apart from his wisdom and mercy. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we can be saved. He is the way and the truth and the life. And as he sits in the throne of judgment, he is pure justice and he will be pure mercy. Of this we can be sure. Number six, in thinking about the judgment that is to come, 
there may be some surprises at the final judgment. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Look at Jesus again in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? And I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, this is not at all to suggest that it's just a total guessing game as to who makes it into the kingdom. As I've said, there are people who appear to have been responsive to God's grace. They are externally religious, but I think in the unveiling of all things, the apocalypse, we will find that they are indeed children of hell. And there are people who may appear to be unlikely candidates for the kingdom who will make their joyful home with Jesus when he returns. The key question in this, and, and, and if you disagree with any points of interpretation, you, you mustn't disagree or miss this. The key question is, how are you responding to the light and the revelation and the grace that God is extending to you now? This is ultimately the key question. How are you responding to what, you, what has been revealed to you? There may be some surprises at the final judgment. The seventh thing that I want to say that we can come down to studying the scriptures is that to secure perfect peace and justice, Jesus will finally banish sin and injustice and pride and rebellion from the renewed heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth. When these two come together, God's going to get the hell out of it. The chaos and sin, the disorder, the, the pride in the human heart will be expelled from the new, the renewed creation. And this is ultimately the essence of hell. It's to be banished and, and separated from the presence of God. Hell is, as one person said, the eternal bringing to nothing of corruption and ungodliness. And I think, both from life experience and from the scriptures, that it may be fair to say that it's less that you get sent to hell and more that you refuse the gift of the kingdom of heaven. The sinner is understood as the author of his own character. I don't need anybody's help. I don't want anybody's correction. Like, this is all on me. The sinner is, is understood as the author of his own character, doesn't need a savior, reaping the fruit of his own choices. All self-determining beings are given grace for salvation if they cooperate with it. This does not deny social or genetic or biological or cultural determinants. It's like you can't, use, you can't appeal to your life situation to exclude you, everyone, but it focuses upon one's own free response to all conceivable determinants. It may not be so much that you get sent as you refuse the gift of the kingdom of heaven. Again, I think the scriptures compel us. Beware the pride that keeps us from thinking that we need a Savior. Beware the pride that causes us to refuse correction and rejects the call to repentance. And beware especially the hardening of your own heart. 
one who has perpetually chosen the settled disposition of unfaith against faith, against the, the, the godless love of self instead of the selfless love of God, lacking works of mercy, will continue after death in a similar self-chosen condition of radical, final separation from the divine presence. Exclusion from the presence of God is the central meaning of hell. If all of my life I've been saying I don't need anybody's help, I don't need anybody's correction, why would I think that in the age to come I would suddenly be a person who's open to it? If I've been an arrogant jerk all of my life, making the lives of the people around me miserable, why would I think that in the age to come I'm suddenly going to be drastically different? This suggests to us that who we are now matters. And if we perpetually, day after day after day, say no to God's work in our lives, why do we think we'd say yes later? And some might object and say, John, if Jesus were just physically present to me, it would make all the difference in the world. But I say this to you, in Jesus' own incarnation, he was physically present to people, and they killed him. If we make a habit of saying no now, what makes us think we'd change our story in the age to come? The Bible uses language in describing hell or punishment or banishment that is quite graphic. The Bible uses language like fire, the worm, to describe hell. And I think it's, I think it's a mystery peering into the fog about whether these things are literal, whether it's a literal place of eternal conscious torment. I do think there is sufficient evidence in the Bible to say that you don't want any part of it. That when the train comes... Like, you want to make sure that you're, you've said yes to the kingdom of heaven. The teaching of hell, one person said, the teaching of hell rightly calls to mind the dignity of human freedom and the high cost of its abuse. My friend Charlie said to me at the first service, he's a preacher, and he knew that I was going to be talking about judgment and hell, and he said, you know, if you're not scared to talk about hell, you shouldn't. And I present this with fear and trembling, recognizing that I will give an account for these very words. And God, strike me if I've spoken in error and publicly humiliate me. Now, some may bristle at the notion of hell, but you can't condemn it without ignoring the depth of the problem of sin in the, in the human institutions, in the human heart, and human relational networks, and its effects on all of us. People have rightly asked, how could a good God allow this to happen in perpetuity? And, and the message of judgment is ultimately good news because God will not permit it forever. The justice of God requires an ultimate confrontation of evil, and yet the mercy of God extends forgiveness to any who would accept it. And I believe that in the end, no one will be able to say God was not just. And in the end, no one will be able to say that he was also not merciful. I can't help but go to Lewis in the last battle, and if you know the story, you know what I'm talking about, but there's this shifty character, his name's not Shift, it's Puzzle, that's the one I'm talking about, who, is, who has been kind of a dum-dum, and the Jesus character comes to him and whispers, he's a donkey, whispers something to him that causes his ears to droop, and it whispers something else that causes him to perk up. In the wisdom of God, Jesus will be found, our judge, as pure mercy 
and pure justice, and no one will be able to say otherwise. The eighth and final thing that I believe confidently from the Scriptures we can say is that in the age to come, evil will be destroyed. Gosh, the the terrible things that we humans do to each other. Just the sinister and evil things that we do to each other and have been done to us. God's not okay with it. Thank God. In the end, evil will be destroyed. Death, our final enemy itself, will die. And we will reign with God as He reigns over us in a renewed and a restored creation. The heavens and the earth forever intertwined. And we're looking ahead into the future that is unknown, the beginning of the dawn of the new era. John in his revelation, Revelation 21, said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea, no longer a source of chaos. And he said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and he will be their God and will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He said to John, write these things down because they are trustworthy and true. Numerous times in Paul's epistles, he warned people against uh, divisive chatter. Kept inviting people back to the bottom line. And what is a bottom line message? If I've spoken any word, an error, if you have a point of disagreement, what is something on which we can agree? Uh, The kingdom of heavens is at hand and our invitation is to repent. How we respond matters. Hebrews chapter 3. Listen, brothers and sisters, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In view of the judgment that is to come, carried out with perfect justice and mercy, what is the response today? It's to repent because the kingdom is at hand. It's as long as you've got it today, make sure on that today you say yes to God's work in your life. And whatever loud or small voice the Lord is working, respond to His light, His grace, His revelation, His prompting. Say yes to whatever it is He's doing and say no to, heart, to, to sin, which is hardening your heart. Say no to those things that are dragging your attention away from the living God. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Four things I want to encourage you with. First, I want you to remember and ho- that God is just and hold on to hope that all things are going to be made new. The things that break our hearts, the things that infuriate us, the things that represent that God's kingdom is not here in its fullness, God will make those things right and so hold on to hope. 
The second thing I want to say to you is don't let sin deceive you and harden your heart. Think about Jesus in the parable of the sower. Those uh, who received the word, the, 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 the seed that had been thrown among the thorns were like those who wanted to believe, and yet uh, the, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choked out the plans and the response of the word. Are there things in your world that are choking out your ability to respond to the gospel? Are there habitual or secret sins that are choking your response to the gospel? Renounce them. Renounce them. Confess. Don't let sin deceive you and harden your heart. Third thing I would say is to turn to God in repentance. When we repent and when we come to the table confessing our sins, we're effectively saying to God, God, would you please get the hell out of me? Like wherever there's evidence of the kingdom of darkness in me, would you get it the hell out of me? I want no part of it. Renounce it. Say, cleanse me. Purify my, my thoughts, my heart. Help me to think and live and love rightly. And then turn to God and say, Lord, would you rule over me? This is the essence of repentance. And then finally, the fourth thing is to encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today. Look, I don't know how you did yesterday. I don't know how you're going to do tomorrow. But today, say yes to Jesus. In big ways and small. Today, say yes to his reign in your life and say no to sin's deceitfulness and the hardening of your heart. Jesus said, the time has come. Hear the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe the gospel. And see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful heart turning away from the living God, but today, as long as it is called today, repent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart have been acceptable in your sight. Wherever I've spoken in error, correct us. When you correct me, humiliate me publicly. And yet wherever I've spoken the truth, may the proclamation of your word come with the affirmation from the Holy Spirit. For those who feel convicted of sin, Lord Jesus, would you give them the grace to repentance? the grace to repent and to turn to you. And for those of us who feel so comfortable and at home and in your presence and so aware of your grace, may we take seriously the call that you've given us to say yes again and to say no to sin hardening our hearts. Lord Jesus, we pray as we receive Holy Communion today that it would be so much more than just a remember what he's done for you meal, but a present tense memory by the Holy Spirit that you are alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Cut us open. Tell us the truth about ourselves. Reveal our sins so that we can walk in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So help us to see ourselves as we are, more broken than we can possibly imagine and more, more dearly beloved than we could possibly fathom. So God, pour out your spirit on this bread and wine. Make it be for us a means by which we experience the power of the risen Christ. We love you, Lord Jesus. We honor you, and I pray that you give us the grace to respond to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. 
May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.